try to do a couple at a time, but it is um, going to be heavy and hard to get through that much at a time. So we are into chapter 9. We are still in the trumpets, so we'll be looking at the 5th and 6th sixth, sixth trumpet um, and uh, what, what comes out of those. I don't have the slides to remind us this time, but again, just I'll remind you of this as long as we are in the scroll, because again, we're still in the scroll, the scroll is being opened. We had the seals opening the scroll, and now coming out of the scroll is the trumpets and then the bowls. Um, really, the trumpets, the bowls, and the seals are kind of a, um, repeating a lot of the same things and, and taking a different angle, looking more um, focused. Um, the, the bowls, or the trumpets rather, look a lot more in depth than what the seals did, but ultimately they're describing a lot of the same types of things that are going on um, that are being prophesied. And so um, we will, uh, let me uh, just remind you how uh, chapter 8 ended. So chapter 8 we did uh, the first few trumpets and now we're moving into um, two more this week. And, and this is how, uh, this is how the, the text last week ended in chapter 8. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the, that the three angels are about to blow. So there's three more trumpets they're about to blow. We're about to, get, we're about to read about two of them. Um, but you'll remember the first four trumpets that we talked about last week. They were plagues, right? They have... Um, they, they specifically, and we didn't talk about this much last week, I don't think, but if we were to go back and look at them, they directly affect the, um, the natural world, right? Uh, apart from humanity, right? So the, 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 um, the water turns to blood, there's hell. Like Now, all of these things are going to affect humanity indirectly. But the point is, is that those plagues have been more about um, affecting um, the natural world um, apart from humanity, apart from humans. And so humans are affected indirectly. But now what we are hearing, the eagle, the, the, the creature flying, um, again, I talked last week, that word can be a little vague. It's either eagle or vulture or something along those lines. A large b- bird of prey, basically, is what we need to know. Um, as it's flying, it's crying out with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. So what's being ha- what's happening you now is there's a transition from those first four, which are which are primarily affecting Earth, like um, apart from humanity, affecting humanity indirectly instead of directly affecting humanity. To now the warning is is now the inhabitants of the Earth, the humans, the people of the Earth, um, woe to them, like um, prepare for what is coming. And so the warning comes to humans saying, you know, what's happened so far has been bad primarily affecting you indirectly. Now things are about to start happening that are going to affect you directly. Um, So that's how we left off. Um, And then again, I showed you this last week, the parallel structure of the seals and the trumpet plagues. We had the first four seals and the fifth seal and the sixth seal. And there was these interludes, which I've talked about that some, where we saw the sealing of the 144,000 and then the multitude from every nation. And then we got the seventh seal. Well, just like that, the trumpets come in a similar way. We get a good detailed view of the first four trumpets um, together at one time. And then the fifth one spends a little bit more time. And the sixth one spends a little bit more time. So you can see even the verse numbers almost line up. Don't line up exactly, but sort of line up with uh, chapter 6 versus chapter 9. And then we get these interludes, which we're going to look at next week and the week after. And then you get the seventh trumpet. Okay, So there's, again, this parallel structure, the trumpets 
and the, um, the seals, right? So they're, they're kind of um, doing a lot of the same thing, proclaiming a lot of the same thing, a lot of the same warnings. Um, and so the trumpets, again, contain a little bit more detail than the seals do, and the bowls will actually contain a little bit more detail than the trumpets do. So each time we are zooming in a little bit more at the, at the events. So let's read um, the, verse four, the first 12 verses of chapter 9 to begin with, and that's on your handout, sir. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority to take authority to the authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those people who who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So again, just pausing this transition from damaging the earth um, to to not damaging the earth, right? They're specifically told not to damage the earth, right? Um, But, uh, and then they were allowed to torture them for five months, but not kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots and horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails is the power to harm people for five months. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two woes to come. Obviously that last verse, again, a warning and a reminder of what the the eagle um, was proclaiming. Woe, woe, woe. The first woe has passed. There are still two more to come. All right. Uh, so I, I showed you this one last week as, as well, um, and, and we got into some of these, but we didn't look at all these. So in chapter, um, or in the, the, the plagues of the Old Testament, Old Testament images, we get, we get a lot of Old Testament images here in the plagues that are being described. Here we're particularly, um, we're right now looking at the locusts. In a minute we'll look at an invading army. Um, the locusts especially have um, some strong imagery in the Old Testament. There are locusts in um, the Old Testament in the, in the plagues of um, Egypt. Locusts are one of the plagues. Besides that, there are um, locusts in Joel. Um, they're mentioned in Deuteronomy. They're mentioned in several places. We're going to take a look at some of those today. Um, but again, there's this clear uh, parallel, not only with the previous chapter, chapter 8, and chapter 7, rather, chapter 6. In those chapters, there's also a clear parallel with the Old Testament. i I don't think I've put this quote up here before, but I did say it last week, and I, and I want to just say it again. John is painting a picture for the readers using Hebrew scriptures and other texts as his paint. Okay, again, he's painting us a picture, and the paint that he is using is images from, from the Hebrew scriptures. So that is our Old Testament, right? But not just the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, but also other texts as, um, as well, which we're going get to a, get a good look at today. Um, so let's talk about the fallen star and the abyss, um, and in the translation I've read, it's called the bottomless pit. The, this word, this Greek word, abyso, abyssos is where we get our word abyss. Um, 
It actually literally means um, no, no bottom. Um, so ah in the Greek always means it's a negate, right? So a negative. Um, so ah and then bissos, um, which means bottom. And so the Greek word literally means no bottom. So, and so that's why my translation says bottomless pit. It's the word abyss, uh, which, you, which we've also probably heard in other cases as well. Um, and so we, we get this in Jewish traditions. Um, stars were often equated with supernatural beings um, like angels. Um, at the beginning, it's, he calls it a star. Um, that, and this is kind of an interesting thought. Um, he doesn't see the star fall. Right? It's not that he witnesses the star falling. The star has already fallen. Um, so the, the grammar there is, I saw a star that had fallen. And so that's how he identifies the star. Um, but that's not, he's not saying he saw the star fall. And then this, then it's happened rather. This star was already fallen. Um, and so that, that, that's going to give us a little bit of clue for, clues in just a minute. This is something that is um, ancient, right? An ancient reality, okay? So I saw a star that had fallen. And then later, without kind of signaling it in any way, John switches from calling it a star to calling it an angel. So again, in Jewish tradition, that was pretty normal to, to see, to understand the stars in the sky as supernatural beings, uh, um, angels, um, things like that. And so the star, again, has already fallen. It's fallen, meaning John knew about this, but he didn't see it happen. All right. So he knew about it. Again, it's coming from other images that he's familiar with as a Jewish man, as a Jewish Christian. Um, and so this fallen star slash angel is significantly different from all the other angels. We've, got, we've heard a lot about different angels in Revelation up to this point. We've heard, I didn't count them before, before but um, we've heard about many different angels. Um, angels worshiping in the throne room. Angels holding back the corners of the earth. Angels um, as, as delivering the message, messages to the churches, right? And so we've, had, we've heard about angels quite a bit. Um, the angels here, the angel is going to be significantly different than all the other angels that we've seen. Um, this one is given the key to the abyss, the bottomless pit. And we learn that he, later on, we learn that he is the king um, over, the, uh, over the locusts, which are, which are described as well, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. And so um, this one is given the key to, abyss, to the abyss, and we learn that he is the king of this destructive, anti-creative, um, these forces that come out of the abyss. And we'll talk about him a little bit in just a minute because I want to talk about this, this language of Abaddon and Apollyon, the destruction and the destroyer, right? So we'll, we'll look at that in just a minute. Oh, wait, no, I have it right here. I thought I was going to talk about it later. I am going to talk about it right now. So the, the name there is given to this angel. In Hebrew, it's Abaddon. In Greek, it's Apollyon, all right? So think about those, those words for a minute. Abaddon and Apollyon. Um, this word, Abaddon, now, now remember, Hebrew is the Old Testament, okay? Old Testament's re- written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. Now, uh, John is a Jewish man who's probably, who speaks Greek as well, so he knows the Hebrew language. He also knows Greek, and so he's able to give the name both the Hebrew and in the Greek. Well, the Hebrew word of Abaddon means destruction. Apollyon does mean destroyer, but there's actually multiple words for Apollyon, um, I mean, for destroyer in the Greek. And so this is a specific word that's used that can mean destroyer. Um, but um, there's, a, there's, a new te- or there's a Greek version of the Old Testament, okay? So don't follow me here. Try to follow me here. The Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew. There's a Greek translation of that. So all the Greek Christians of the first, or Greek Jews of the New Testament could read the Old Testament scriptures in their own language. Now, whenever they translated the Hebrew 
to the Greek, this word appears quite a bit, Abaddon. It appears in, um, in Psalms. It appears in Job quite a bit. It appears in the Psalms. I mean, in, in Proverbs. And so this word appears several times, but this word is almost never used for it. Here's what I'm trying to say. John very intentionally says Apollyon as opposed to another Greek word that could be used. This one is not used as frequently. So anybody, when you hear the word Apollyon, any other sort of images, what, what does that sound like to you? Any ideas? I want you to get in your Greek mind. Try to remember some Greek philosophy or Greek thinking, Greek history. Apollyon. Anybody knows any? No, yeah. um, I know you're just coming in, but Kevin, when you hear Apollyon, is there any other Greek images that come to mind besides destroyer? Because I'm sure you knew that it meant destroyer, right? I'm just kidding. I I didn't know until I was doing this. I was thinking of Apollo. Apollo! Yes! I wanted to say Apollo. It is a Greek god. Apollo is a Greek god. Okay? Apollo is a Greek god. Now again, we'll, I think there's more clues here in just a little bit in chapter 9 to, to, to back this, this thought up. He's saying Apollyon because instead of the other word, again, there's another word that's actually more common to describe someone who is a destroyer. Apollyon's kind of a, a unique term. It does mean destroyer, but it's kind of a unique term. He chooses that word specifically, though, because it sounds like Apollo. It sounds an awful lot like Apollo, which is a Greek god. Again, he's writing to um, Roman, which Roman folks were Greek. They, they worshiped Greek gods. Sometimes they give them different names, but they were really the same gods that they were worshiping, right? Um, and so Apollyon, it sounds an awful lot like Apollo, which was a significant god for Greek speakers, Greek, uh, um, Greek people who worshiped um, the Greek gods. Okay, so still talking about the fallen stars in the abyss. Okay, so there's some imagery that can be helpful that first we'll pull from the Old Testament. So in Genesis chapter 6, this real strange scene happens. Um, this is just before the flood of Noah, okay? So what, the, the, um, what, what Genesis is trying to do here before, before telling the story of the flood is to demonstrate just how bad humanity has gotten before the flood happens, right? Look at chapter 6, verse 1 through 2. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. So there's this image of these sons of God, these divine figures, other people might say angels, some form of angel, comes down to, to earth and, um, and takes wives among humans. And, I, and what happens later, and, and this isn't specific for this, but... Um, the children that they bear become the heroes of old is what, what Genesis tells us. But what, what, what it's really, why it's including this right here, Genesis, is that um, it's to demonstrate that human sin, brokenness in the world, has gotten so bad that it's even reaching the heavens. <laughs> even sons of God, angels in heaven, are, are being sucked into the, the abyss, right? To the, to, the, um, to the brokenness and sin of the world. And so... Um, this is something that happens, um, and we start to see this image being painted early on in the book of Genesis of angels kind of falling, angels coming down. And so we're, we're looking at the fallen star that, that, that John mentions. Um, then later, has, has anybody heard, ever heard of the book of Enoch? Okay, so the book of Enoch, let me just say this, because some people don't realize this, it's not in our Bible. 
It is not canonical. It is the, the church and um, so the Tanakh, which is the uh, Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the Nabim, which represent which is the prophets, and then the Ketavim, which is the writings, does not include Enoch. Okay, so so Christians, Jews have said, no, this is not our scripture, right? And so um, we, we don't, I mean, we can read it and it's very interesting, but we do not hold it as scripture. Um, but it is, it is some Greek writing, I mean, some uh, Hebrew writing that, um, that John probably would have been familiar with. Some of, his, uh, some of the Hebrew um, Christians that he was speaking to may have even been um, familiar with it, but it was not their scripture. Listen to this, 1 Enoch 21, 1 through 7. I'm just going to read this whole thing. And I went round to a palace where nothing was made. Listen to that language. A, pa- a place where nothing was made. And I saw a terrible thing. Neither the high heaven nor the firm ground, but a desert place prepared and terrible. And there I saw seven stars of heaven bound on it together, like great mountains and burning like fire. Then I said, for what sin have they, talking about the stars, been bound? And why have they been thrown here? They've been thrown down. Okay, these are some of the stars which tra- this is in, this is the response to his question. These are some of the stars which transgress the command of the Lord of the Most High. And from there, I went to another place even more terrible than this, and I saw a terrible thing. There was a great fire there which burned and blazed, and the place had a cleft reaching into the abyss. Okay, full of great pillars of fire which were not made to fall, neither is extent nor its size could, I could see. So the book of Enoch, again, not a part of the Christian Bible, not a part of the Jewish scriptures, but it was a common extra biblical reading um, for Jewish people. And it's becoming pretty common for, for a lot of Christians. They read it um, out of interest of it. But again, we see John using these images from he's seeing these similar images in his revelation in his apocalypse as has already been described and painted with Enoch. So, again, he's using the the paint of the Hebrew writings um, in scriptures to, to illustrate what he's seeing, right? And so that obviously seems to be kind of a sign of where he's getting that image of a, of a fallen star, which is an angel, right? And so um, just a really interesting writing. We're going to come back to Enoch in just a few minutes. Um, but let's get into the locust, unless anybody has any more questions about that. Again, I think we're going to talk about that Enoch in just a minute again. But just be sure I don't have any questions there. I I don't have any uh, pauses put in. All right, well, let's look at the locust. Um, verses 3 through 4. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree. So the main thing that the locusts do, um, like, like, like locusts, think about Old Testament locusts. What do they do? Yeah. So what do they do? They do destroy grass and and earth and anything that's growing on trees. So it's kind of interesting here that the command that these locusts are given is don't destroy any of the stuff that you typically would destroy, right? It goes on to describe these locusts as nothing like locusts, right? And so um, clearly trying to use an image from the Old Testament locust that... um, that actually when he describes these creatures, it's nothing like locusts. So listen to this. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. Um, Joel 2.4. Um, Joel, the book of Joel, real small book, um, uh, prophet. 
It's all about, it's all about Joel responding to an event of locusts coming and swarming, and he's in, he interprets it as God's judgment on the people of Israel. And so he's writing about locusts. So Joel 2.4, the locusts have the appearance of horses and are like war horses. Okay, back to Revelation 9. They look like horses equipped for battle. Clearly an image from Joel that he's pulling from, right? Um, their teeth are like lion's teeth. Um, earlier in Joel chapter 1, verse 6, its teeth, um, describing the, the swarm of locusts, it, the swarm of locusts' teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Again, clear uh, connection there to Joel. Um, and then finally, the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Back to verse 4, as with the rumblings of chariots. So it's this clear image that the uh, Christians that he was originally writing to, that we, as, as people who read the Old Testament scriptures, are, are familiar with. These images from Joel um, are being painted again in Revelation. So even as he goes on to describe the locusts as looking or acting, behaving nothing like locusts, he's using that image of what locusts do. They destroy, they're destructive, in order to give us an idea of what um, this image is that he's seeing um, in Revelation. Um, because then he goes on to, to describe this whole thing. In appearance, the locusts were like horses, equipped for battle. Okay, that's from Joel. On their heads was look, look like a crown with crowns of gold. We've already talked about crowns a little bit in this class. Crowns represent um, victory, right? They, you, you, you've accomplished something. Um, their faces were like human faces, so nothing like, <laughs> nothing like locusts. Their hair was like women's hair. They had hair at all as locusts. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions, and then they're again described as scorpions, and so they're more like scorpions than they are like um, locusts. We won't... Um, I don't really think I need to spend a ton of time on these different specific things. We haven't been doing that because, I, you know, there's people that break it down and this means this and this means this. I think what he's describing ultimately is a terrifying um, uh, image, right? A horror story, a horror movie um, image is what's being described here. And, and what he wants to do, what, what the purpose of this image and this vision is, is to demonstrate the terror of sin's punishment. What what result? What human sin and brokenness was results in? Um, verses five through six. They are allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of scorpions. Again, when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So, in the case of apocalyptic judgment of evil, those who are bearing the seal of God um, and the Lamb from chapter seven, they're protected. We're told. Um, they're not allowed to, to harm that. We're, we're told that earlier. That makes it clear that what is being described here, the torture um, of the scorpions, is not um, representing uh, persecution, right? Because I want to be clear about that. The, those who are sealed, even those who are sealed, they're not protected from persecution. They make it through persecution. They don't make it around or past or by persecution. They, they make it through persecution. So obviously... Clearly, which I don't think anybody thinks this, but clearly what's being described here is judgment, punishment because of sin, not um, any form of uh, tribulation like a, a persecution, a time of persecution, because it is the, uh, those that are sealed that, that um, do escape this, this uh, pain. Um, there's this question of five months. What does that mean? Um, so a lot of people have suggested that maybe... Um, 
there, there's a lifespan of locusts. Actually, it lasts about five months. The, the lifespan is somewhere around five months. So some people have suggested that that's what that is implying, that that's how long locusts live, that's how long the punishment is going to live. Which if, that, if that's true, think about it. Locusts, typically what they're known for is swarming in somewhere, eating everything, and leaving. So in other words, these locusts are swarming in and staying <laughs> for five months. Um, and so again, another thing that's not typical of locusts, but makes these locusts even more terrifying, right? And so um, that might be it. Generally, what, what needs to be communicated here is this isn't the final judgment, right? So we're having all these different punishments and judgments that are coming, um, these plagues that are coming um, to judge, to be used as judgment. But um, this one... We, it needs to be known. There's, there's more to come. There's more. This, this isn't it. This is not the final judgment. Um, and then uh, Revelation 9-11, they have a king over them. Again, this is not how locusts act. Look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27. Locusts are a big deal in the Old Testament. Proverbs 30, 27. Locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. And so there's obviously a proverb about that. Um, but the, the point is that once again, there's this Old Testament image of locusts kind of having no leader, no king, and being in unison. Um, but in this case, these locusts are even more terrifying because they do have a king over them. And it's the angel of the bottomless pit, um, destruction, the destroyer. And so, again, you know, this, this, um, this is how locusts typically are. But in reality, these locusts that are being described by John are all that more te- terrifying because of it. Um, so is that kind of implying that the God that the uh, Greeks worship Apollo is the devil? Yeah, so um, I did it. I started to put a slide up about Apollo a little bit more. Um, I couldn't find this. The, the commentator that I, uh, that I was reading said that actually locust is um, one uh, – one uh, symbol of Apollo, which is another um, evidence that, that he's thinking of Apollo there. I couldn't find an image of that online to, to display it, so I just left it off. Um, but yes, so um, we're going to see this in a minute, okay? We're going to see this at the end of, of, of chapter 12 or chapter 9, where um, John, like most Jewish people, understood any form of, of worshiping a God other than Yahweh, um, and in their case, Christ is a form of devil worship, is a form of worshiping Satan. So again, um, John's, John continually refers to the Roman Empire and Caesar specifically as Satan, as the devil, right? And so they're doing the work of the devil. So yes, is a, the, in John's mind, is Apollo like the devil, like Satan? Yes, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I think there was another... Oh, well, we'll, we'll look at the next... In the next section, there's, there's more evidence of... of um, human uh, sorts of forces as representing and kind of embodying um, Satan, the, the fallen star, right? The, the star that, that's being described here. All right, so we've already seen in chapter, back in chapter six, do you remember way back in chapter six, whenever we're first being given the description of um, the plagues, a shorter, um, more zoomed out version of it um, as the seals are being opened, what happens in, at, at the end of chapter six is then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich in power, everyone slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rock mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us 
and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and the, from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay, so we've already seen in, in this, during the judgment, there are people that are suffering so badly from the judgment that are in so much pain that they want to die, but they are unable to die, right? That's what happens in chapter 6. Well, here that's described again, and that's just kind of more evidence that, that John's just describing all of the same things. Again, the nesting dolls that I talked about last week. Um, he's describing these same events in more detail. So again, here, it's a similar um, description. And in those days, uh, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. They are not able to die, um, and they, but they desire to because of the pain and suffering that they are experiencing as a result um, of human sin and brokenness. And so, again, just another sign of the overlapping of the trumpets with the seals. Um, let's move on to the next section of chapter 9. Um, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river of Euphrates. So the four angels were released, who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, to kill a third of humankind. The number of the troops of, Cal of the cavalry was 200 million. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore bre breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of the humankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the, for the power of the horses is in their mouths, and in, the, and in their tails, their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they inflict harm. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders and their sorceries or their fornications or their thefts. All right, so let's kind of walk through this again. Um, where we hear of these angels bound at the Euphrates River. Um, four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates. I think a lot of times people read this and they immediately go back to a couple chapters ago when there's angels holding back the four corners. And so they, they get those images kind of um, confused and they think that these, these angels must be the four angels that are mentioned earlier holding back. Um, but the language here is very particular. They are bound. All right, again, so we started up off chapter 9 with a new image, a new imagination of angels. Again, up to this point, angels have been messengers of God, worshiping God. Um, they've been, you know, God's, you know, a part of God's um, um, throne room, right? A, an important part of God's work, announcing judgment, things like that. But here, again, we were reminded that, that this image of the angels are not as are, are angels who have fallen, right? The fallen angels, the stars who have fallen. Um, remember, back in Enoch, we read this. And there I saw seven stars of heaven, meaning angels, seven angels of heaven, bound on it together. All right, so there's seven here. Um, you know, John is seeing four that are bound at the great Euphrates. So again, um, we, are, we are thinking about angels that are causing destruction, angels of destruction, not angels of creation, um, of God, of Yahweh, of, of, the, of the Lamb on the, and the one on the throne, but rather angels of destruction, angels who have fallen, who have, um, um, you know, in the case of Enoch, come, um, been thrown down from heaven, right? So this is a really, this has got to be the most interesting part of chapter 9 to me. Um, this idea, release the four angels who are bound at the great 
River Euphrates. Here's a map of the Parthian Empire. I've talked about the Parthian some, um, and as we've been looking at the first century. This is the Parthian Empire, first century. It's during the, the during, um, Revelation. So Revelation is written in the first century. Um, the Great Euphrates is right here. This blue around here is the Parthian Empire. Um, you can see over here, this is Asia Minor, so this, minor, so this is where uh, Revelation is written to over here in this area. Um, Jerusalem down here, so this area is the Promised Land. Um, so so uh, the Euphrates River is there, and so the Euphrates River almost serves as this area, um, and in this case, um, the, the Persian Empire, or the uh, Parthian Empire has kind of spread past it a little bit, but the Euphrates kind of serves as this area where if you're there and you're Roman, or if you're there and you're from Israel, um, you, you're kind of in trouble <laughs> because that is your enemies, okay? This is the enemy empire, one of the few places that Rome in the area that Rome has been unable to capture. I talked about that. One of the, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse seems to describe um, a, a Persian or Parthian sort of um, warrior with a bow. Um, and so that, that's likely, um, so, that, so whenever the, the, the first readers um, read this and they read the, the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, in this first century, if there's angels holding something, are bound, and about to be released, what do you think that thing is? It's this other empire. All right? So what's being said is, is release those angels that are going to serve sort of as, um, as uh, destructive forces for the Roman Empire and also for Christians. Again, that was one of the things I said about, about the um, Parthian probably representing one of the... Um, for horsemen is that this wouldn't have been a rescue for Christians. The Parthians coming over and taking over the Roman Empire would not have been a rescue for Christians. It would have been more empire who would have who would have caused the death of more Christians, most likely, just as Roman Rome was doing. Well, here's what we also need to know. You can see this it says Babylonia. This is also where Babylon was. You know Babylon and the Old Testament, they're the enemy. This is also where Assyria was. Assyria being the bad guys earlier in the Old Testament. It's also where Persia was. Persia being the bad guys in the Old Testament, right? Persia, or first Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, um, and then just happens to be the one space that Rome has been unable to take. Listen to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 20. On that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, hired beyond the river. What river? The Euphrates. With the king of Assyria, that's where Assyria was, um, the king of Assyria would have been beyond the river. That's who Isaiah is talking about, that, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will take off the beards off as well. So basically what's being described here is that Isaiah sees the um, invading armies of Assyria as God's judgment, right? Here in Revelation, we're, we're being told that on that day the Lord will shake, or sorry, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates when they are released the empire that is Parthia um, is going to be released onto the Roman Empire. And I think that's really interesting to, to think about. But what he's describing, again, is judgment because of human sin. That's what Isaiah was describing, judgment because of Israel's sin, right? And so this idea that the, this army is about to be released um, and, and destruction is coming for the Romans, who have been sinful, who have been um, causing so much brokenness in the world, um, by this other empire, who is also a representation of evil, 
right? Coming out of the abyss, these angels um, coming who are bound at the great river Euphrates, these thrown down angels, these um, angels of destruction. Again, so um, another, another tool that God is using to bring judgment, but is also um, an embodiment of brokenness and evil as well. And so it's a direct connection between to, to empire, again, right there. Um, empire is what's being revealed as broken and, um, and evil in the world. So then we look at um, what it is that is actually being released. So release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So they are released, who had been ready for that hour. And then what happens? Without kind of any explanation, John jumps into an army. The number of the troops of Calvary were 200 million. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates the color of fire, of sapphire and sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Um, and then, uh, I don't think I have it there, but there's a description of a tail looking like a serpent. Um, some suppose that this is, again, I described this before, how Parthians fought. All of their soldiers rode horses. Their armies were almost always smaller than Rome, but they were really hard to defeat. The Romans had a really hard time defeating them because they rode horses and they shot from the back, they shot arrows from the back of their horses. They were really good at that. And so this description of a serpent, what they would often do is they would kind of come around the army and they would shoot turned around backwards like that. If you look at Parthians on, on Google Images, you see them a lot of times they're turned around backwards shooting, which is kind of this idea of the tail of the horse being like a serpent causing destruction. And so again, these images are, are you know, very mythological. They're mythological images of locusts and horses and soldiers having these different body parts. Heads of horses were like lions. Like, and so you have these descriptions that are very, um, very mythological, um, but they're describing like realities for those that are in the, the first um, century. They're describing realities for those people um, and, and, and things that they would have um, thought of. They would have thought of the Parthian Empire if they were thinking about the great Euphrates River. All right, so N.T. Wright says this. Let me try to get through these uh, quotes. I've still got a few minutes. Humans were made to reflect their wise, loving creator, but somehow their hearts have become full of rebellion, filth, and wickedness. Now it appears that the same is true at a cosmic level. The world, though made by God and loved by God, has come to harbor within it the abyss, uh, um, which is what's being described here, of such rebellion, anti-creation. So that's what was described um, by Enoch, a place where nothing is made. That's what Enoch describes the abyss as. Nothing is made. It's anti-creation. It's destructive, um, right? The destroyer, which is what the, the, the angel is referred to, has been thrown down. Such anti-creation destructiveness that though God normally requires it to be restrained, in the case of the angels, they're bound, right, but then they're released. If it is to be dealt with, if those angels of destruction, that brokenness and sin is to be dealt with, it must sooner or later be allowed to come out to show itself in its true colors. Um, I, I've quoted some N.T. Wright from his study on this before. N.T. Wright has this, this particular opinion. Now, what Revelation is being described as is God allowed, it says allowed a lot, right? There's a lot of, they were allowed to do this. They were allowed to do that. And so what N.T. Wright is saying is, is that they're gonna, there's going to be a point where evilness is allowed to exist fully in its fullness. And its whole, like it's going to evolve to a particular place where it cannot be restrained in us and humanity any longer in creation any longer and it's going to be allowed to be shown and that is a part of God's plan because it is when that happens that revelation 
that apocalypse happens, it can finally be dealt with by God and God's people, right? God's army, right? The, the army of the faithful. That's when it can finally be dealt with, when it is shown in its true colors. That is N.T. Wright's opinion. I, I, I think it's a strong argument for what Revelation is trying to do. Um, with that in mind, where do we see evidence of this kind of widespread cosmic harboring of rebellion and destructiveness in our own times? Where do we see evidence that this type of stuff is, is you know, there? It's, it's maybe in this, under the surface a little bit, maybe really close to the surface. Yeah, yeah, right. For sure, yeah. I mean, Revelation's written in the first century, and I mean, the, 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 uh, the best that John can do to describe the destructive forces is that it was, a, it was an army of 2 million people, or 200 million people, however, however he describes it. How would it how, what would his vision have looked like in today? Might have looked like some of those scary drones you were just talking about a little while ago. You know? Um, that, that resemble locusts in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's how they describe it in Joel. Like the, the locusts are like an army. It's an army of locusts. Well, what are armies like nowadays? Maybe it's a little bit, bit less like people and more like drones and, and those, those types of advanced warfare that, um, you know, I think a lot of times it, I've, I've heard this in the news that um, the goal of drones so often is to be more precise. And there's this claim that we're going to have a... Um, um, have these different wars that, that have no casualties, no uh, um, collateral, no, no uh, you know, people who are not involved in the war dying. That is just not true. It doesn't matter how precise they are. There are going to be innocent people, innocent lives that are killed from these destructive forces that are made. Not to mention, I mean, again, the, the evolution of technology. We talked about this before we even got started. I knew I, knew I was going to come back to it. Um, but this idea that our technology, not to be Luddites who are scared of technology, but um, aware that we create these things for good intentions of going in and eating, um, you know, Joel was just telling us about this a little while ago, these, these nanorobots that go in and eat good, bad cells, right? Cancer cells and how they could be used for evil as well. And so we just have to be aware of that, I think. And, um, and I think that maybe that's the images that, that a revelation that, that were to occur nowadays would look like. Um, yeah, so, I, and, and then just even, even just nuclear war, right? These these mass these weapons of mass destruction like I mean that that is that is human evil right um, and we understand now a lot of times it's the the argument is made for defense or just wars right and that's not what I'm trying to get into right now but this idea that that those are needed that weapons are needed right um, even at a personal level if we feel that we need guns to protect ourselves or our families that is a sign of brokenness and evil in our world if we think that we need that to protect ourselves right. Um, and, and I'm not again. I'm not getting into a debate or, or arguing that we shouldn't have guns, but but rather to say that that is a sign that our world is really broken. That 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 many of us feel that that's a need that we have is to, to be able to protect ourselves. Right? That is a sign of brokenness. School shootings. That's got to be the, the worst evil in the world that exists. Children, young children, killing, being killed. Um, I mean, it, that is a that is a sign. That is evidence of widespread cosmic evil. Rebellion, destructiveness in our world. Um, and, and uh, yeah, it's here. It's, it's here with us. And it has been. Um, it has been. Um, then N.T. Wright says this as well. We too have seen terrible things in our days, such as sophisticated military equipment to strike terror into human hearts. If we suppose that such destruction ultimately comes, like insects on steroids in John's vision from the bottomless pit, 
under the direction of, of Apollyon, what is our proper response? And so again, taking that stance that N.T. Wright's saying is that this is inevitable. That's what John's saying, is, is the evil of, of sin and human, uh, and human brokenness is, is inevitably going to result in these types of destructive things. That's what John, that's what, that's what John in, in the book of Revelation is saying, that it is inevitable. There's no way to keep it from happening. If that's true, what's our response as, as Christians? How do we respond to that in the inevitability of it? We sit in hopelessness. I mean, we have the hope of Christ. Sure. Okay. Right. We're not done with Revelation, right? So, I guess my question with bringing that up is: Do we just sit around and wait for Christ to come? If I guess my 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 question and the question is coming from: If this is inevitable, what can we do? What should we do? What we what can we do about it? Um, should we give up on any forms of, of trying to prevent it, <laughs> these types of things? Can we prevent it as a whole? John's saying no, we can't. We can't prevent it as a whole. This, this evil destructiveness, it has to, as in NTU's rights words, it has to be released in fullness so that it can be dealt with in fullness, right? Instead of, um, instead of what we are able to do. And I guess, um, and I'll... I'll come back to that. I wanted to come to this here. Um, there's, another, there's another way of looking at it and another argument that could be made. Let me read this. John's language is like the language of Hebrew prophets. You said that. He is prophetic, all right? Um, it, is a, it is a prophecy, right? While the grammar suggests that the events described are sure to happen, which is what N.T. Wright is saying, the purpose of the prophetic word is always to call to repentance, right? The purpose is always to say, Repent. So the prophet says this. These are the things that will happen to you if you don't repent, says the prophet. We might say that John sees the world as too far gone and not likely to repent. But the rest of Scripture challenges us. Prophets, the, the Scriptures of Jesus, they challenge us to not get too stuck in that way of thinking. right? And even Revelation will in just a little bit. Um, but we might say that John sees the world as too far gone and not likely to repent. But the rest of Scripture challenges us to read Revelation as motivation to work towards reversing the destructive ways of the world. Hope you're hearing what I'm saying. Um, my point is that Revelation is it's often taken as this foregone conclusion. This is what's going to happen. This is what's happening. Um, and so part of what uh, we can kind of um, end up in and the attitude we can end up in is it's going to happen, so we might as well just sit around and wait for it to happen and just get out of here whenever you know the time comes. Um, some, you know, some even come along and claim that now the events of the apocalypse are beginning. And I, I mean, again, I'd say under the surface it is here. Like the destructiveness that is being um, predicted and prophesied here is, is here. We are feeling the tensions of that. We turn the news on, we feel it, right? Um, but this way of reading uh, can cause us to see our role as Christians as simply just waiting around to the end. And that is how a lot of Christians have lived their lives, just sitting around waiting for the, the end of the world to come. Um, and what part of the problem with that is, is we become complacent. We see the destructive evils of war and, and brokenness in our world. And we sit back and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's going to happen. So we might as well just not do anything. Um, again, I try not to get, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not getting partisan. I might be getting political. I'm not getting partisan. This is why we have to vote in such a way that we have, we have peace as our goal. 
right? This is why every single Sunday we pray during pastoral prayer for peace, right? We don't want the destructive things in the world to get out of hand and, and, and kill one-third of the life, as John describes it. Is it inevitable? We could probably say, yeah, maybe it is, and we could, we could argue that point. Um, but I guess I just I want us to be careful because it can, when we're, as we're getting into this Revelation text, we can, we can really get bogged down in, in the inevitability of this, this destructive forces and just say, well, we just got to wait till the end of Revelation whenever Jesus comes back and snatches me away and rescues me, right? But in, re- in reality, our call as Christians is to resist systems of evil and, and work towards their change, work towards the change of systems of evil in our world so that um, children in schools aren't killed, <laughs> so that, um, that war does not happen whenever possible, right? Um, that, is, that is our job. I mean, and, and again, I mean, I, I just, I, I worry that we Christians can, we get too scared of, of politics and things like that, but in reality it is our calling um, to be involved in politics, that just means people dealing with people. Poly, uh, polit, you know, polis. It's it's referring to the city, which is referring to people, human beings who live in the cities, right? And so, so we we have to be politically involved and engaged. Again, not saying partisan, but political in such a way that we are working towards peace in our world and and the um, restoring. Uh, the overturning of broken systems and the, and the changing of broken systems. And so, anyway, that's what I want to say. Um, I think Revelation should be motivating us towards that, not towards hopelessness that says, well, the world is gone, so we might as well just sit around and wait until it's fully done, right? And there's, no, there's no work for us to be done, right? All right, I hope I'm being clear there. Um, I think that's my last slide there. Uh, any thoughts, questions, last couple minutes? Oh, well, negative minute. <laughs> We think being active in in overturning the corrupted system, the mm-hmm. evil system, and I think back to what happened when our country was formed. The people who were forming our country, they were actively mm-hmm. fighting against the corrupt. Sure. To in order to form well. Yeah. Use their words to form a more perfect union. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I would just, and maybe just to, to correct myself a little bit, we have to be careful too because then that could be just us being hungry, power hungry, right? Yeah. Right? Like I just want power. So I can, right. and, and we go in with those good intentions. Lots of politicians went in with the intention of, oh, I'm going to do some good. I'm going to do some good things. And are they doing that now? No, because they got power hungry and they, they liked it a little bit more than they should have. Um, and so. That's where we have to have to be careful with that balance, right? We can also get power hungry and think um, we go into it thinking I have these good intentions, and in reality we're just being destructive in other ways, and we're still just participating in a destructive, broken system. Um, not something we're going to solve right here, uh, right now. But just to say that I think we we should be involved in and in actively trying to to overturn and um, just like Jesus, he overturns the tables, right? What is he doing there? He's, he's saying this system of the temple right now, the way it is, is broken. It's wrong. It's messed up. He's literally overturning tables, right? And our call is to follow that, that Messiah, right? All right, well, let's pray. And um, if you have any other thoughts, feel free to share them with me. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for, um, for this word, Lord. We thank you for all of Scripture, in which case we can... Um, 
read this text that can kind of be scary and, and, and confusing and difficult at times, but we can read it through the lens of, of you, um, the, the word made flesh, and know that you're, you have called us not to hopelessness, but to hope, um, not to laziness, but to active, um, as you did, overturning of tables um, of, of broken and destructive systems in our world. Help us, O oh God, give us the strength to do that as your church and as your, your, your people. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.